0: One of the most hot-button political issues in the United States revolves around the idea of paying reparations for slavery to black Americans. How such a plan will be implemented is a subject of debate. Some proponents favor direct cash payments to the descendants of slaves, while others support financial investment in predominantly black impoverished communities. In the final months of the Civil War, Union Army forces under General William Tecumseh Sherman began seizing cotton plantations from southern slave owners. Sherman then issued Special Field Orders No. 15, in which he stated that this land would be divided among newly freed slaves so that each family would receive 40 acres of tillable land. An excess of mules owned by the Union Army also led Sherman to grant each family a mule. 40 acres and a mule therefore became a slogan in favor of giving these reparations to the freed slaves. However, under President Andrew Johnson, southern slave owners were given back their land, and the freedmen living there were either forced to leave or remain on the plantations as low-wage sharecroppers. A second chance for these slaves arrived in 1882 with the Homestead Act which allowed all American adults to claim 160 acres of land out west. However, southern state governments blocked almost all black applicants from receiving this land. Due to the government's failure to properly compensate freed slaves, many Americans believe this responsibility should be passed on to today's government. One of the most compelling arguments for slavery reparations comes from the fact that the U.S. government has already paid out reparations to another group that has experienced systemic racial discrimination. On August 10, 1988, President Ronald Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 into law. This law granted reparations to Japanese-Americans who were imprisoned during World War II under Executive Order 9066. The bill was sponsored by Democratic Representative Norman Mineta of California, who had grown up in an internment camp. Under the provisions of the bill, those who were interned were entitled to $20,000 in compensation, as well as an official apology from the U.S. government. Over 80,000 Japanese Americans received compensation checks through this law. The mass internment of Japanese Americans during World War II was undoubtedly one of the most shameful actions ever undertaken by the U.S. government. Make no mistake, these people were not POWs. They were American citizens imprisoned entirely because of their ethnicity. Individuals with as little as one sixteenth 16th Japanese ancestry were interned. Understandably, this created a dilemma for multi-ethnic families. Apart from the comparatively rare imprisonment of German and Italian American civilians by local police departments, no relocation orders were issued for non-Japanese civilians. However, many Japanese Americans at the time were married to Americans not of Japanese descent. These non-Japanese individuals usually chose to relocate to internment camps, so as not to abandon their Japanese spouses and children. But there is one American, neither Japanese nor the spouse of a Japanese person, who voluntarily spent two years in an internment camp during World War II. This same person played a crucial role in obtaining reparations for those interned during the war. I'm going to tell you all about him. Right now on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 40th episode of this podcast, and I'm so glad you've stuck around for this long. Special thank you to Patreon subscriber Tom. If you want to receive a shout out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash Historia Obscura and becoming a patron. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. Lazo was born on November 3rd, 1924, in Los Angeles, California. His father was Mexican American, while his mother was Irish American. The Temple Street neighborhood in which Lazo grew up was predominantly Japanese. Lazo's father was frequently on the road for his house painting business, and following the death of his mother, he would regularly eat dinner at the homes of his Japanese American friends. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese military attacked the naval station in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, killing over 2,400 Americans. The next day, Congress declared war on Japan and the U.S. entered World War II. Two months later, on February 19, 1942, President Franklin Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066. Under this order, War relocation centers were established in the western, midwestern, and southern U.S. Japanese Americans were forced to evacuate their homes and relocate to these camps. At this time, Ralph Lazo was 17 years old, and he was absolutely shocked to see that the families he had grown up around were being forced to uproot their lives simply because they looked like the enemy. In his words, quote, These people hadn't done anything that I hadn't done except go to Japanese language school. So, he decided to take action. In solidarity with his Japanese-American friends, Lazo decided that he would go to the relocation camps with them. In May of 1942, Ralph Lazo simply told his father that he was going to summer camp with his friends. He then boarded a relocation train with his friends and their families. This train brought Lazo and his companions north from Los Angeles through Burbank, Santa Clarita, and Palmdale, weaving between Sequoia National Forest and Death Valley National Park before arriving at Manzanar War Relocation Center. Manzanar, located at the foot of the Sierra Nevada Mountains, housed Japanese-American internees primarily from Southern California. Anyone who has been to Death Valley or any other part of Southeastern California knows that this region can get insufferably hot in the summer and intolerably cold in the winter. The area also remains extremely arid and windy year-round. The conditions in the camp at Manzanar were no different. According to Lazo, quote, In the summer, the heat was unbearable. In the winter, the sparsely rationed oil did not adequately heat the tar paper covered pine barracks with knot holes in the floor. The wind would blow so hard it would toss rocks around. The residential areas of Manzanar had essentially no privacy. Every family was given a cramped living space separated only by cloth curtains from other families. Bathrooms and showers were completely out in the open, without partitions or stalls. These residential areas did not have kitchens, and all food was instead obtained from the mess halls. The foods provided in the mess halls were processed and heavily starchy, such as Vienna sausages, canned baked beans, and applesauce. But for many internees, the most difficult part of living in Manzanar was simply why they were surrounded by barbed wire fences and guard towers. The nation that many of them had called home for generations now saw them as an enemy. In spite of the conditions at Manzanar, Ralph Lazo made it his mission to keep spirits high in the camp. There were many different ways that Manzanar internees were able to cope with their imprisonment. One of the most notable ways was through sports. Competitions were held in sports such as football, golf, and martial arts. But baseball was by far the most common sport played at Manzanar due to the sport's massive popularity among Japanese people. Entire leagues were formed with dozens of teams of a 100 men each. Some internees also saw playing baseball America's national pastime as a way to prove their loyalty to the United States. Lazo personally attended every baseball game, and he was known for firing up the spectators in an attempt to keep spirits high. He also played guitar and acted in theatrical performances for orphans in the camp, and he even held holiday parties for adult internees. Children and teenagers in Manzanar, meanwhile, were allowed to attend school in the camp. Lazo was elected president of the class of 1944 at Manzanar High School. He went on to graduate 150th in his class of 150 students. Many adults found employment as farm workers, factory workers, teachers, and nurses. Some were even granted early release from Manzanar to work as police officers and firefighters. But without a doubt, the easiest way to get out of Manzanar was to be conscripted into the military. In August of 1944, Lazo was conscripted into the U.S. Army. As Ralph Lazo left Manzanar after two years of imprisonment, his non-Japanese heritage was finally revealed to the camp's guards. Apparently, they didn't question him during his imprisonment due to his brown skin. Many Japanese American men who enlisted or were conscripted into the military were sent to fight in the European theater as they supposedly had too much loyalty to the Japanese to fight in the Pacific theater. However, as Lazo was revealed to be non-Japanese, he was sent to the Pacific Theater. Lazo served as a Staff Sergeant in the Army. He helped to lead the Philippines campaign of 1944-1945, serving under Major General William Weigel, a native of New Brunswick, New Jersey. Following the end of the war, Lazo was awarded the Bronze Star for his heroism in 1946 he requested a discharge and returned to los angeles where he reunited with his friends who were interned during the war in 1950 lazo received a bachelor's degree in sociology from ucla and in 1952 he earned a master's degree in education from cal state northridge he became a high school teacher specializing in working with disabled students He also led a grassroots movement encouraging Hispanic Americans to attend college and register to vote. Throughout the 1980s, Lazo helped to raise funds for a class action lawsuit by Japanese Americans in turn during World War II. These efforts were finally successful in 1988 with the passage of the aforementioned Civil Liberties Act of 1988. Four years later, on January 1, 1992, Ralph Lazo died from liver cancer in Los Angeles at the age of 67. Throughout all of World War II, he was the only non-Japanese, non-spouse internee in a war relocation center. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. This was personally a very interesting topic for me to research. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash Historia Obscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash Historia Obscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.